वेलकम एवरीवन टू अनदर एपिसोड ऑफ डीप टेक म्यूजिंग्स आई एम योर होस्ट प्रोनजीत शाह ऑन दी शो टुडे वी विल बी स्पीकिंग टू एलेक्स हु इज द कोफाउंडर ऑफ अ ब्लॉकचेन एनालिटिक्स स्टार्टअप कॉल्ड नैनसन एलेक्स स्टार्टेड हिज करियर एज अ डेटा साइंटिस्ट एंड इज अ सीरियल एंटरप्रेन्योर हिज लेटेस्ट स्टार्टअप नैनसन एम्स टू कंबाइन टू ऑफ द मोस्ट हॉटेस्ट डीप टेक दैट्स ब्लॉकचेन एंड डेटा साइंस सो विदाउट फर्दर अडो लेट्स हियर फ्रॉम एलेक्स व्हाट्स हिज स्टार्टअप अप टू Hi Alex, uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks very much. Great to have you here. Let's learn more about your uh, background and your analytics journey till now. Sure. Yeah. So, I'm Alex. My background is in artificial intelligence, machine learning. Graduated from the University of Edinburgh in 2010 with a master's in AI. I was doing different things at university, Bayesian statistics, ensemble methods you know the stuff that actually we used to do before deep learning was a big thing and then when i handed in my dissertation the same day i had it down to the office to start my own company with two course mates and the idea was basically to bring artificial intelligence into the business world and this was in 2010 so again it was before deep learning was a thing So we had the I would say limited success like we had some interesting projects that we did but overall you know I needed to learn more about business and so on so I decided to go into management consulting for a couple of years and so I found a company in Oslo in Norway I'm originally from Norway myself and I moved back there to start working mostly with management consulting oriented around analytics data and analytics and so I worked in industries like banking insurance but also some more fringe industries like luxury retail and seafood of all things and then in 2014 i moved on to join a big european media group where i started as data scientist and eventually became data science manager for a team that was spread across london oslo barcelona and uh, casablanca actually So yeah so that's kind of my journey right now I'm working in the blockchain space I'm the CEO of a company called Nansen which is an on-chain analytics company uh, and we help both crypto professionals and crypto investors surface the signal in blockchain data so yeah that's pretty much my journey up to now great so that's good to know you got your hands dirty pretty early on right after your uh, education and yeah i'm also intrigued to know what you did in seafood so probably on an off line discussion we'll get more into it <laughs> that sounds tasty <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i have to share separately okay okay so you mentioned uh, you are now involved uh, with Uh, or you've co-founded the startup Nansen. So, what motivated you to start Nansen, and what problems are you solving there? Yeah, so I've been working in the crypto data intersection since 2017, and so I've worked with startups in the space. I've worked with some of the big DeFi or decentralized finance protocols like Zero X and a DAO platform called Aragon. in various different capacities like a consultant and also I was leading a data team at a startup in Hong Kong and basically the common one common problem that I saw across all these different companies I was working with was that they they wanted to better understand addresses and so 
by addresses, I mean the participants on a blockchain, in particular on the Ethereum blockchain. So, you know, anyone can get data on what the different, say, addresses or wallets do on a blockchain, but it's not so easy to understand, like, which entities do they correspond to in the real world? And also, are there ways we can segment these different addresses into behavioral clusters and things like that? So that was kind of the motivation for Nansen. Like originally, we set out to build just like a wallet labeling API. And so we wanted to have the best database on information on addresses. And then over time, when we started testing this with users, we discovered that we needed to take a more holistic approach. And so we decided to build out like an end-to-end analytics platform, which combines the on-chain data that you can pull out from Ethereum with address, contextual address information. So for example, if you wanted to know, you know, how much money is flowing between different exchanges in the crypto space, or how much money is flowing into different DeFi protocols or uh, decentralized exchanges, you need to have good annotation of addresses. You need to index up, you know, all the different addresses that you can on a blockchain. And so that's what we do. And with our data, you're able to much more easily understand what kind of activities actually taking place on the blockchain. Okay. So if you want to make it a more uh, like convenient for those who are a bit new to blockchain, so wallets and addresses are like some tool which anyone, uh, an individual would need to transact on a blockchain, right? Yeah. So you can think of an address, you know, there's different terms for it as well. Uh, it's often referred to as a wallet. Right. But the term wallet, I think, is a bit confusing to people. So I think I would, mm-hmm. I would rather think of it as like an account. Yeah. So if you have some crypto assets like, uh, you know, Ether or different tokens or stable coins and whatnot, you can save them in an account. And that account has a specific private key, which effectively is your password. And with that password, you can control the account. So you can choose to send the funds to another account. You can use the account to interact with different applications that run on Ethereum. And so effectively, it becomes kind of like your user account uh, on the blockchain. That's how I would think about it. Right. And with blockchain and the uh, basically privacy, so these wallets are anonymous uh, to start with, at least. So you are not aware, one is not aware of who exactly is owning this wallet, right? Yeah. So I think... I'd, probably use the term pseudonymous instead of anonymous because the thing is the identity of a wallet is persistent over time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that means you have a name, but then the name is kind of like a long string. So it's not a human readable name. And so in that sense, yes, you don't necessarily know what the entity is behind the address, but it does have a persistent identity over time, which means you can track it And you can understand, for example, which other accounts it interacts with and so on and so forth. So, yeah, if you just get on-chain data from from Ethereum or so on, you won't know anything about who the different people are, but you will still see a record of interactions from these different pseudonymous identities. Okay. And as you said, so you first started out with trying to understand uh, the entities which are actually using these addresses. So why is that important? Can you shed some light or what future benefits are enabled by identifying who these wallets belong to or uh, accounts belong to? 
Yeah, so there's many different reasons why this matters. If you're an investor, for example, in the crypto space, probably you would want to know who are the different holders of a specific token, because that can inform you of, for example, are they a long-term holder or are they likely to perhaps tomorrow go out and sell all the tokens on the open market, crashing the price of the asset? So that's one motivation. You want to understand, you know, who are the counterparties in this world and what actions might they take in the future? And the assumption is that if you know a bit about their identity or their past behavior, you know, you, you'll be better equipped to, you know, make decisions on what to do with your assets. So that's, that's one reason. Okay. Another motivator could be if you're thinking about this from like a due diligence perspective. So let's say there's a new application that just launched on Ethereum. And very often these applications have vulnerabilities. And that means they might lose your funds. If you send money to them, although the application is kind of intended to be safe, there could be bugs or vulnerabilities and you might actually end up losing your money. And one thing that people use our platform for is to check which other addresses have interacted with this application. and because they might not have the skills or the resources to do their own very in-depth due diligence process, they can just see which other entities are interacting with this and then make the assumption that the other entities did the due diligence before them. And so in that sense, it's kind of a risk management use case. There's also lots of other use cases. So I think if you just look at it from the macro perspective, you know, you try to understand what are the different crypto assets being used for? You know, where's the money flowing? Like, why are people using stable coins? You know, what's the, what's the motivation to create stable coins and send them around on the blockchain and use them for different things? In order to answer that question, you need to know where the stable coins are sitting. So what addresses are holding them, which smart contracts are holding them, and so on and so forth. So basically, I would say the it's always about information. And then the information can be used in different ways for investment purposes, risk management, or just generally having an overview of what's happening in the blockchain ecosystem. That's good to know. So you are enabling the investor to take the rightful decision and also protecting its interests in a way. I can yeah. really connect with that kind of use cases as an investor myself. Yeah, exactly. There are some other use cases which maybe are more familiar to people in the blockchain space when it comes to on-chain analytics. And mm -hmm. probably traditionally, the most known use case has been for compliance and anti-money laundering. And so if you're an exchange or if you're a money processor, an OTC desk, etc., you would want to know the origin of the funds that are being deposited to you. And so typically an exchange or an OTC desk, they will use some form of compliance tool or anti-money laundering tool, which lets you check the origin of the funds. And that's another use case for on-chain analytics. Okay. So let's talk about the target market now. How big is it? And how are the people currently solving this issue or using some other alternatives? Yeah, so it's quite difficult to estimate the size of the market, mm -hmm. especially the size of the near future market, because crypto is extremely fastly growing. Agreed. And at the moment, you know, it's still pretty niche. 
It has a lot of capital, but it does not have that many users. So if you think about how many people in the world are actually using, say, wallets, for example, right? Probably the, the most cited figure here is the number of users on MetaMask, which is a very popular Ethereum browser-based wallet. And I think they've crossed something like 1.5 million users. But there's actually a, maybe another wallet that is maybe less well-known in the West. But in Asia, there's a mobile wallet called IAM Token. And last time I spoke with them, I think they had something like 10 million registered devices, and they have more than 1 million active users per month. So it's, you know, it's already in the Ethereum ecosystem, you have millions of people using these products. Now, when it comes to analytics itself, traditionally, the focus has been mostly B2B. And so analytics providers have been targeting exchanges, OTC desks, as I was mentioning before, with AML solutions, but also clients in the public sector, like tax authorities or law enforcement, government agencies, etc. Um, so that's been the, I would say, the kind of traditionally the focus for on-chain analytics. Our focus with Dunstan is actually on the investors and traders. And so there's different ways you could try to estimate how big that market is, but we tend to think that our main customers are those that manage at least $100,000 and they trade at least a couple of times per week. So they're relatively active users. They're quite sophisticated. And then you know it goes from there up to really the largest uh, individual whales, as we call them, You know the individuals that hold a lot of crypto, crypto funds, both VC-style funds and hedge funds, market makers, and so on and so forth. And you can estimate like, how big these different category, uh, different segments are. We've right. looked at some of the on-chain data on exchange deposit addresses. And I think if you look at Binance, and if you look at wallets that have had, had at least $100,000 deposited into them, last time I checked, I think it was around 100000 and it might be more now. So most likely, you know, if crypto continues to grow, that segment alone is probably going to continue past the million you know, over the next few years. So that's one way to think about it. If you take a step back, though, and you consider that hopefully crypto and decentralized finance will displace traditional finance you know, over the next years and perhaps decades... And in traditional finance, data analytics is already a $100 billion plus sector, right? If you look at, you know, Thomson Reuters, Bloomberg, MSCI, FactSet, Moody's, S&P Global, etc. These companies, if you sum up their market caps, I mean, probably would be worth more than $200 billion, actually. And Bloomberg alone is estimated to generate more than $100 billion annual revenue. So... If we think that crypto will displace traditional finance, you know that's the order of magnitude that, that you're probably looking at for the overall data analytics sector. Got that. What would be your differentiating factor from the other on-chain analytics providers that are there? Uh, is it just the market segment that you're going after? Yeah, so I think you can think about this from the market, as you said, the customer segments, and the other mm-hmm. is the technology and the data. Okay. And so I think... If you look at the traditional like big AML and compliance providers, like Chainalysis would probably be the most right. famous. And they just raised $100 million at a valuation of $2 billion. So they're already you know, past the unicorn stage. 
they are traditionally very good at, at Bitcoin, for example, Bitcoin analytics, and they also do other blockchains as well. I think we have had a more strict focus on Ethereum, which means that we are very good at understanding smart contract data, decentralized finance data, etc. And so, you know, I think it's fair to say, also having spoken to customers of both companies, that we're doing a better job on Ethereum at the moment. But we're also focused on one chain, which is the Ethereum blockchain at the moment. Then there are other analytics companies that collect on-chain analytics, but they don't do like wallet labeling very much. So it's more about getting macro stats on hash rates, you know, usage, number of addresses and things like that. And a company like Coinmetrics could be one worth mentioning there. They're also very institutionally focused and their main client base has been, you know, institutions instead of, say, the retail segment and individual traders, individual investors. So I think those are two companies that you, you can mention. There are, of course, many others as well that go down the, the long tail of, of analytics providers and, and websites. And the cool thing about crypto is that a lot of it is very, you know, grassroots. And, it's, and you see a lot of new websites popping up, you know, every week with people looking at some very niche or granular aspect of crypto and they make a website for it. And that, that's really cool. So yeah, you have kind of the whole the whole span of analytics products out there. Right. Uh, good to see your focus. And definitely that sounds quite interesting going forward as the Ethereum market is building up. And Ethereum does enable a lot of other KISP vis-a-vis uh, be some other blockchains out there. So I am personally also more excited or have been more excited in the past about Ethereum more than the other blockchains. And so I really hope that it will definitely, though it's been sitting back in the second or third position, but might be it catches up a lot in the coming years. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Ethereum was the thing that really got me into crypto as well. I had known about Bitcoin for many years. I didn't really resonate that much with me, to be perfectly honest, the Bitcoin narrative. But I really liked the Ethereum narrative of basically creating this platform where you could issue any type of application on top of it and it could run in this permissionless, unstoppable way. So really, Ethereum was the thing that got me very interested in crypto as well. Right. And I think, yeah, as you, like, Ethereum has a clear lead on the other blockchains when it comes to both developer activity and developer ecosystem and, of course, usage. So with the recent news, I don't know if you saw this, but now Visa is basically settling transactions using an Ethereum-based stablecoin, USDC, that was announced yesterday. And it's just one more data point to show that you know Ethereum is definitely the dominant blockchain when it comes to applications that go beyond just what Bitcoin can offer. Right. Uh, probably we need some celebrity endorser to just push that <laughs> Ethereum volume up <laughs> and adoption. Yeah. Up, right? yeah, that's true. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, if you look at the use cases, right? Decentralized finance is one yeah. use case, lending, borrowing, yeah. trading, etc. Ethereum is dominant. NFTs, it's been a bit more uh, spread out. So non-fungible tokens or like right. unique tokens that you can buy, art, gaming, and so on. That's been spread out uh, across more blockchains, but still, I'd say the main NFT activity is still on Ethereum. And then, you know, there's other use cases as well. But I think those are the two, you know, biggest buzzwords in the last two years. 
Yeah, and really depends on the like timing as well. So NFTs like are getting main prominence now, but uh, I remember CryptoKitties being there for now ages. That's true. It seems five yeah. six years has been there, right? Yeah, I think they launched in two thousand seventeen. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. great. So it's only now that NFTs are getting the prominence uh, there. Okay, so apart from this Ethereum uh, on-chain data and the wallet levels that you enrich from your own uh, tools and techniques, so what other data do you capture? Anything else or is it these two only that you primarily focus on? Yeah, those are the two primary data sources we focus on. So on-chain data, which actually there's a lot of work just doing on-chain data too because you need to Mm -hmm. parse out certain transactions that are different than others. You need to standardize different event types across, let's say, decentralized exchanges. But yeah, then the off-chain part, the off-chain part is kind of richer because it can also be many different types of sources for it. So let's say you wanted to connect information about a specific crypto fund with the address, right? So we might want to go out and scrape the web to find information about the crypto fund or the VC fund or the market maker, the mining pool, whatever it is. So the off-chain part of our data is actually quite rich, and it has like lots of different sources that feed into it. But those are the two main ones. We do have some basic like market data as well, you know, pricing, volume, and so on that we pull from different sources. But those are like the two the two main sources. And of course, our platform is a platform where people look at different crypto assets, right? They look at which tokens they are maybe considering to invest in or that they've already invested in. And that in itself generates user data, right? So we can basically get an idea of what are the trending tokens based on what our users are looking at. So that's another you know, proprietary source of data that gets generated through our platform. Got it. And how have we accounted for scalability in your solution? Yeah, so... That's a good question. So you can think of scalability in different dimensions, right? One is like, if we had 1 million users, you know, logging in tomorrow, how would that look like? But also scalability in terms of being able to like parse all of the historical events that have ever taken place on a blockchain. So on the second part, I think we're already scaling nicely where we can basically process like almost as much, we can process all of the historical data from a blockchain if we want to but it's quite costly. So we basically build aggregations in many cases where you have this, it's kind of like this concept of of a Lambda architecture, which maybe some of the listeners might be familiar with. You kind of aggregate data up to a certain point and then effectively you stream the remaining data for, let's say, all the new data points that are coming in today. And then you combine those two things in one table. And that table then Basically, you can save a lot of computing power because you've aggregated up the entire history. And then you can just add on like this, the real-time data on top of that. So that's one way we think about scalability in terms of the data itself. And then the other part, like scaling horizontally across many different users, we are actually <laughs> investigating this now because our current solution doesn't really scale that well across users. And we are effectively going to add more different database technologies that are more scalable across users than what the stuff we're doing now does. So right now we're very we're quite uh, reliant on like columnar databases, like BigQuery or analytical databases like BigQuery from Google Cloud Platform, 
And this is a great technology for the first type of scalability, like scanning tons of data, but it's not really ideal for horizontal scaling across, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of users. And so that's why we're looking at alternative solutions now, more traditional relational databases, for example, where we can run the aggregations and perhaps store some of them there, but they'll be cheaper to access. So those are some ways we're thinking about it. Got it. Sharding may also be one of the ways to go about, as I was hearing with some other blockchain developers as well. I think I'm forgetting the name, but uh, a sharded blockchain is something which people were talking about uh, back. Yeah, okay. So that then then you're kind of talking about the scalability of the blockchains themselves, right? Yeah, I'm talking about adapting that to our solution probably. Yeah, so... You know, the explanation I was giving before is more about the scalability of our data infrastructure. And we right. we read data from, say, Ethereum nodes, right? And that data goes into other database technologies. And actually, uh, the amount of transactions generated by a blockchain like Ethereum is actually not that much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like, say, the Visa, the Visa network, which would process like thousands of transactions per second. With Ethereum, you're still processing maybe, you know, let's say around 15 transactions per second or something like that. So it's obviously the volume is actually quite a lot lower. But when you talk about scalability of the blockchain itself, yes, you know, that there's many different ways to scale. The main focus right now, at least for the Ethereum ecosystem, is what you call layer two solutions. And so these are different types of solutions that sit on top of the so-called layer one kind of base layer blockchain. But there's kind of a, a layer two where you might compromise, for example, some of the security in order to have more transactional throughput and basically lower latency on the transactions. And there's, there are actually many different L2 solutions being rolled out this year. And if, if anyone's interested, I can mention a couple of them. So Optimism is a big one. There's another one called ZK Sync. There are also other projects that are not maybe regarded as L2 solutions, but they're rather side chains uh, where you kind of send your funds and they get parked, let's say, in a smart contract on Ethereum, and then they get mirrored on this other blockchain, which looks like Ethereum, but it doesn't have the exact same security guarantees. And an example of such a sidechain is Polygon, which used to be called Matic. Uh, now it's called Polygon. And yeah, there's actually a pretty big variety. Starkware is another one, another L2 solution. Yeah, so there's many different ones. So it's, it's really L2. That's kind of the near-term scaling solution for Ethereum. And then the longer term is to transition to Ethereum 2, which involves sharding, like you were talking about. Yeah, so that's another big area in itself when it comes to scalability of, of Ethereum. Got it. Thanks for listening. This concludes the first part of our discussion. Be sure to check out the part 2 where Alex discusses Nansen's future plans and his views on crypto markets.